Good afternoon. It's Monday, the 12th of December 2022, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News, your host today, Mike Robinson, myself, Brian Gerrish, and we're delighted to be joined by David Scott, bringing us Northern Exposure from north of north of the border. Apologies for that. And uh, we're also joined by Mark Anderson from the United States. Okay, we're going to get kicked off uh, with this. Uh, this is a reminder that last week we were reporting from the NHS Confederation that health leaders were welcoming this new elective recovery task force, uh, which is all about apparently uh, more outsourcing of NHS services to private companies. Uh, so this was the uh, response from or the comment from the Department of Health and Social Care that experts would focus on how the NHS can utilize existing capacity in the independent sector to cut the backlog. Uh, and of course, this is going to come at no extra cost to the NHS. Uh, now, yesterday, uh, Wes Streeting, who is the Shadow Health Secretary, uh, was on the BBC. Uh, and uh, well, he seemed to be agreeing with this policy, which seems unusual for the Labour Party. But uh, anyway, here's what he said. We already have staff who do a significant amount of work in the private sector. Uh, I'm not talking about robbing Peter to, Peter to pay Paul. I'm talking about dealing with the fact that there are empty beds available in the private sector. And perhaps worse still, we have a two-tier healthcare system in this country today where those who can pay to go private and are seen faster and those who can't afford to pay are left lagging behind. And I think that is deeply unfair. I would rather, as a short-term measure, use the private sector to bring down NHS waiting lists faster at no cost to those people who can't afford private healthcare uh, at the same time as putting the investment we need to make the NHS fit the future. And that's what the last Labour government did. So, David, I don't know what your thoughts are on that, but I mean, what we should uh, note, of course, before you comment on this is uh, that, uh, as he said at the beginning of that, he acknowledged at the beginning of that little clip, uh, many of the people that are working in these in, for these independent providers uh, are, in fact, already also working for the National Health Service. So it is exactly robbing, to pay, robbing Peter to pay Paul in the sense that staff are going to have to come out of the NHS to go and uh, fulfill those tasks in the private sector. So what do you think is going on here? Well, quite. Uh, another, another politician saying, well, un it's unfair. As Brian pointed out last week, childlike language doesn't really mean anything. Um, robbing Peter to pay Paul is the entire principle of government because you can always be uh, assured of the support of Paul. Um, and there is no real analysis here of what the problem is. I spent a fascinating three hours on the train heading up from London on Friday with an NHS nurse discussing all of these things. It's not privatisation that's on offer, of course, because privatisation does not involve coercing the people who will use the service to use the service or at least to pay for it. But that's what the government system does. Um, th it's all about choice. What this does is it makes, it, it takes the private sector and it gives it one customer, which is the state, and, and the people who should be the customers, the patients, they become the product. And that mindset tends to permeate everything. I find this not reassuring. Hmm. I, I just add that uh, last Thursday, we put out a very interesting interview uh, with UK Column and a gentleman called Duncan White, who was looking at some of these very um, these very points. Uh, he's got a lot of experience in the NHS and outside and around the NHS 
in the care system and uh, we'll do our best to get that interview up as soon as possible. Um, people can see some of the uh, points that he raised, including some quite surprising revelations about who has been driving policy inside the NHS. Um, also last week, Debbie Evans was talking about anti antibiotic availability and so on. Well, this is the uh, Pharmaceutical Services Negotiating, Negotiating Committee, uh, and they're highlighting the issue of antibiotic availability and the pricing. Uh, and this is what they're saying. Wholesale prices of many anti oral antibiotics have risen significantly owing to the surge in demand. Uh, this is as a result of Strep A, for example, uh, and the ongoing supply disruptions affecting these medicines. As the majority of wholesalers are showing uh, as out of stock on most lines, uh, we're also hearing that some suppliers have significantly put their prices uh, up this week for any oral antibiotics they do have in stock. Uh, due to pricing issues affecting several medicines, including antibiotics, uh, PSNC has applied for a record number of price concessions this month. We're very concerned that many contractors who are desperately trying to get hold of limited stock of antibiotics for their patients are paying inflated prices for these medicines without any certainty of their final reimbursement prices. Uh, and that's quite an interesting point because um, some of the pharmacists are saying that they're losing 30 pounds uh, on every packet of antibiotics that crosses the counter uh, at present as a result of the fact that they're not getting reimbursement from the NHS uh, for what they're having to buy from wholesalers. Um, so David, uh, let's move on to COVID then uh, and Christine Anderson. Yes, there's a, a range of COVID stories I've got. There's, there's a lot of this that's happening all the time. I just picked a few that I thought were particularly interesting. Christine Anderson, we've covered in the past. Um, she's often excellent on uh, on these issues, and she is again here today. So she tweets here, um, so this is how they're playing it now. The United States government posts a study on their official website, which concludes that adverse effects from mRNA injections are due to the stress caused by anti-vaxxers. They will really stop at nothing. And she's got an abstract here. She tweeted out the abstract of the paper. So it's talking about the um, problems that they're seeing at vaccination clinics. This biological mechanism, reconstriction of veins, arteries and vessels under mental stress, is the most likely cause uh, for where there's, there has been blood clots, strokes, heart attacks, dizziness, fainting, blood vision, loss of smell and taste uh, that, may be, that may have been experienced shortly after vaccine administration. The extreme mental stress of the patient could most likely be attributed to the fear-mongering and scare tactics used by the various anti-vaccination groups. There are almost no words to describe the desperation of the lies that are coming out to try and explain why the vaccines are harming people. Right? This, is, this is simply hiding from the truth. It's gaslighting of the most blatant and unconvincing form. And uh, very gl glad that uh, uh, Christine Anderson pointed that out. I'm going to say, David, this is something a lot of people have picked up on. I just add that, of course, you've used the phrase gaslighting. What we've got here is applied psychology once again by the state, which is inverting reality in order to confuse people. But they're not confusing people. and This is a beautiful thing. Now, we've got an example here. Uh, I don't think we've ever featured the uh, Rangers Football Club annual general meeting before, so another first for the UK column. So this is well into the AGM and lots of questions about football tickets and football performance. Um, and then 
somebody stood up to challenge the board on their administration of the uh, tyrannical government COVID policy. Good morning, my name's Billy. Uh, first of all, you've had some tough questions today. Uh, my question's a little bit different. Firstly, I want to congratulate you on delivering positive results for Rangers. As a board, Rangers got to the European Cup final. We won the Scottish Cup and uh, we got into the Champions League. However, my question to all the board, apart from Michael, is can you really say, hand on heart, that you showed honour to your fellow human being in 2021 when people like me got a blue letter like this and did not comply with tyrannical instructions from the Scottish Nasty Party. They implemented digital ID via coercion and you complied. People like me who have supported Rangers from a young age were not allowed to come into the stadium. We were outside like dogs. That was segre segregation, it was discrimination. Okay. It's been Can we move on to the next question, please? I'm ready, please. And he was closed down. Not only was there no answer, he didn't even get to complete his question. Although the idea that they'd failed to honour their fellow human beings, I thought was put, putting it beautifully. Um, now, what we saw there was the inability to answer the question. There was no answer. It was panic. There was, we're going to close you down. We're going to no platform you because you're off message. But there is no answer. There's no depth to what they've done. It's simple compliance with state di diktats. And when they're called out that this was tyranny, this was discrimination, they have nothing to say for themselves. What did you make of that, gentlemen? Well, it's a, it's a pretty good example of how it's done. But what I find so frightening, David, is the fact that we have supposedly intelligent guys. They all looked men, I think, on that board. Um, but they can't make a decision about this because the state had got inside their heads and they couldn't actually think about the issue. This is why the government's use of applied psychology is so dangerous and why we need to take the lid off it at every turn. It's very encouraging to see that we've got members of uh, the psychiatric and profession and psychology profession who are actually starting to speak out on it. But the real danger is that we now have people in positions of decision-making power where they can no longer think. Yes. We've now got a couple of examples of um uh, of, of ongoing discrimination. That was discrimination that happened in the past that has fortunately stopped, but the, the discrimination and the, the, the state tyranny has not stopped when it's come to COVID. So we've got one case here from America. An unvaccinated 14-year-old is rejected by a top hospital for life-saving surgery. Um, she's a 14-year-old girl. She needs a kidney transplant, but she's been refused medical care by Duke University Hospital because she is unvaccinated. Um, this is uh, Clark County Today uh, reporting. Uh, they, they continue, she was adopted by North Carolina Army veterans Chrissy and Lee Hicks in 2021 after being brought from the Ukraine to the United States in 2018. She has a genetic ki kidney condition. Um, now, Emily Grace has created a fundraising campaign to help with the cost, confirmed the hospital has refused to even treat her. Um, 
And they continue that this isn't the only example of previous cases they say have been so numerous they don't even make headlines anymore. Uh, but uh, they report here a case which went to court in Alberta, Canada, where the judge ruled that a woman did not have her rights violated when she was denied an organ transplant due to not being vaccinated against coronavirus. Um, so this is the ongoing assault on liberty. It's, it's nasty. Uh, it's tyrannical. It, it seems to have no limitation on how much harm it's willing to do or how callous uh, it's willing to be. And this second example shows that. This is from New Zealand. Uh, we've got to hear a Guardian headline, health officials gain guardianship of a baby whose parents refused vaccinated blood transfusion. Um, and uh, Bernie Sofos here uh, tweets, uh, in New Zealand, the state owns your children now. The judge has ruled in favour of health authorities and has given them guardianship of a baby boy whose parents simply wanted unvaccinated blood for a transfusion, even though enough blood was available. State control is absolute. Um, another article on the same story from The Guardian um, uh, describes how New Zealand parents say they will focus on supporting their son now the guardianship... Uh, 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 in, sorry, now in the guardianship of his daughters... Um, through this life-saving operation. Um, the parents' uh, lawyer, Sue Gray, said in a Facebook post on Thursday morning, the family will be prioritising a peaceful time for the baby until the operation and to support him through the operation. It appears the hospital is planning the operation today or tomorrow. Gray said they have uh, security guards preventing baby W from leaving the ward. That's a nice touch. Uh, we have concluded that the government cannot afford anything to go wrong for baby W as the world is watching. He's likely to get the best possible care with the best, the best and safest blood. So this illustrates why the ongoing campaign against us that, that COVID-19 represents is, an, is, is still happening. It's still happening all across the world. And that's why it's important that people stand up uh, everywhere and resist. I was at and reported on a, uh, on a, a, a march in Perth at the end of October, um, and some and someone who was there sent me some video. We'll play the full thing in extra time. But I have a little clip here, and it's it's using the music of uh, Five Times August, a, a favourite of the UK column, who we've interviewed, um, and that interview is well worth watching. Um, and it shows, I think, the, the the joy and happiness that was visible that day and is visible in the resistance to this tyranny. And we've got to remember that. Uh, we've got to keep smiling and we've got to keep resisting because the, the assault on our liberties, on everything that's reasonable, on everything that's right, is unrelenting. Uh, it's not stopped just because the mask wearing and mandates for COVID have been relaxed. It's ongoing, but it's targeting some of the most vulnerable.
And that just illustrates how important it is for all these people who came out, the people who make the videos, the people who made the speeches, one of whom Brian's going to be interviewing in the new year, uh, and, and people like Five Times August uh, and Brad Skistimus who make the music. Everyone's making, everyone's making a contribution and it's, it's uh, a, a lovely thing to be part of. Okay, thanks for that, David. And I would just uh, bring this up on screen. This is uh, Vanessa Bailey's article uh, just published on the UK Column website on the euthanasia programme in Canada. The headline is Canada's expanding euthanasia laws, making the unthinkable thinkable again. So let's just take a couple of quotes from this. In 2016, Canada, with Justin Trudeau's administration in office, passed Bill C-4, legalising medical euthanasia and physician-assisted suicide. Uh, together referred to by Canada public bodies as Medical Assistance in Dying, or MAID. Uh, by November 2020, more than 19,000 individuals nearing end of life had been voluntarily euthanized. Uh, it goes on to say, in March 2021, the law was amended by Bill C-7, which permits assistant euthanasia for patients whose death is not reasonably foreseeable. In 2021, it's estimated that more than 10,000 people were assisted in killing themselves in Canada. Uh, and then another quote here, in the case of uh, Amir Farsoud, uh, has shocked Can Canadians into questioning the expansion of assisted dying uh, into the realm of mental health, uh, especially in the current unforgiving economic conditions globally. Uh, so, you know, we're seeing uh, the slippery slope here, as I remember uh, a number of years ago, whenever the discussion of euthanasia was being uh, brought up in UK politics. Uh, that, well, don't worry about it, it's only going to be in very specific cases, it's only going to be in the, in the case of somebody who's really at the end of their life, that they're uh, absolutely able to make the decision for themselves and so on. Whereas in Canada, we've seen this law passed uh, in, in, over a number of periods of time, over a number of years, and we've seen that initially it was exactly as expressed in the UK, but then they uh, expanded it to include people that maybe had made a decision in the past, but were no longer actually considered competent to make a decision now, but they could still be killed. Now they're including people that aren't foreseeing the end of their lives, and now they're including people with mental health issues. And in fact, in that article, there's an instance, uh, and I'm sure there are many more, of someone who was making the choice between being homeless and being dead. And in Canada, this is just going off the charts. In fact, I think I've got that one here. Sorry, I've missed, I've missed one here. Let's bring that on. Uh, the Canadian Federal Expert Panel on the Application of Made for Mental Illness has recommended mental illness be grafted into the MAID framework. It's just incredible how quickly this is moving and how many people are being uh, killed by it. Uh, it is, Mike. Um, later in the news, we're talking about another subject where there's been a clear policy operating throughout the whole government structure, swallowing up huge amounts of money. What we've got to do is come back to who were the individuals who created this policy, who were the individuals that enacted the policy. It's not governments doing this, ultimately, it's men and women in rooms who are making these decisions and those uh, individuals need to be identified and held to account. I think this is a fundamental point. But we'll also say that we know for the UK column audience, many of these topics are very challenging and uh, a lot of people find them difficult subjects to listen to, to read, but we're reporting reality. This is what is happening in the world and in UK. And if we're to deal with it, we've got to stand up and grip these subjects. 
Well, let's move on to more death and destruction. Of course, if we have governments that are prepared to carry out euthanasia on its own citizens, war overseas by proxy is no problem at all. Uh, we've got a little video clip here, which I'm just using to highlight the style of the war in Ukraine. Much of the fighting is in built up areas, but in many cases um, it's uh, it's men trying to hide in ditches or in tree lines with a few armoured vehicles that are being taken out very quickly, particularly if there are drones in the air. And we can see the horror of this situation, situation where armoured vehicles are destroyed and you can see the men very clearly on the ground around them. This is happening largely as the result of uh, Russian weapon systems, but Ukraine also operating drones in this way and men being killed on both sides. But of course, the story which the West is really not sure how to frame uh, concerns Bakhmut. And this is where the, uh, the bulk of the fighting at the moment in a built up area is taking place in Ukraine. So the Telegraph with an interesting headline here, Inside Bakhmud, the strange and senseless death trap draining Ukraine's tired army. So that's the headline. But if you read the article very quickly, it's spun as though the Ukrainians are mowing down thousands of Russians who are charging in um, useless attacks against the uh, Ukrainian positions. Uh, but in fact, something else is going on. If we can just pop that one on screen. Just want to bring this comment in here. The Telegraph is clearly confused because in the headline, it describes what is really happening. It describes a death trap draining Ukraine's tired army. But it's clear when we look at the article itself, the Telegraph can't understand what's happening. Uh, if we get into just part of it and we we'll just highlight here, um, it says some conflict experts say Russians obsession with the city has become nothing more than a ploy to drain Ukraine's armed forces of their limited resources. So something is going on in this city. The Ukrainians don't want to let Bakhmud go. The, the Russians are clearly uh, want to take it. Uh, but we've got conflict experts who are confused because it appears it's doing nothing more than draining Ukraine's armed forces of their limited resources. Well, of course, amongst the tragedy of the thousands and thousands of Ukrainian killed and wounded, uh, what we've got is the reality that this is the last bastion of defence for Ukraine. If Bakhmut falls, it undermines the whole Ukrainian defensive line. And the Russians are in no hurry uh, to do this because at the moment they are simply drawing in thousands of Ukrainian forces and reinforcements and they're killing them. And so the Telegraph doesn't want to talk about the reality of what's happening on the ground. We've got to go to social media to actually have a look. And of course, if you look at any area across Ukraine, the first thing you can see is the thousands and thousands of artillery shells those artillery shells are creating the deaths. Russia is firing nine to one in a ratio to the Ukrainians. And yet um, US, UK, NATO and EU dare not mention the Ukrainian casualties. And the reason, of course, is that those casualties are so high because Ukraine is losing the war. What the West needs to do is stop the war. Let's look at uh, this little clip. We've shown thermite or phosphorus, as some people claim it is. We don't know. 
but just to show the sheer horror of how troops are being cleared out from tree lines and amongst um, uh, small built up areas. Let's have a look at this uh, video clip. Well, that really shows it all, a truly horrible situation. Of course, anybody touched by that falling thermite or phosphorus is going to be extremely badly injured, if not killed. Uh, but of course, this is huge areas now being laid to waste. But at the moment, nobody in the West wants to stop the war because the war is good for the ultimate agenda, which is supposedly regime change in Russia. But other reports coming in show that the casualties amongst mercenaries are now increasing. And uh, this is just two individuals, or these are two individuals that I've taken from social media. I'm taking the reports as correct. Uh, but it's very interesting that we've now got a female mercenary identified as being recently killed, according to the report. I'm gonna put in a question here. Um, which is why is the BBC not calling for equality uh, to be enforced on the front line with 50 to 50 male to female, female fighters on the Ukrainian side? Apparently all of that BBC agenda has gone out of the uh, window. But the tragedy is nobody, nobody in the West is calling to stop this war. The agenda is to get more weapons in. And if that's not bad enough, we've now got Britain boasting that it's going to be setting up a new fighter uh, with the support of Italy and Japan. And this apparently, according to Rishi Sunak, is going to help us uh, increase our military um, intervention capability in the Indo-Pacific regions. Um, so no sign of backtracking on anything other than war is good and we need more, Mike. Uh, yes, indeed. Uh, right, uh, David, let's move on to the European Parliament then. Now, I saw a story today, there's a bit of a corruption scandal going on in the European Parliament at the moment. Um, there, there is, um, I'm, but that's not what I'm focusing on here. I, I've got a talk here that was given by uh, a Polish professor uh, of um, uh, philosophy and uh, historical philosophy and, and modern politics. So a, a man who thinks about things. Um, and this was at the 70th anniversary uh, of, of the European Parliament. And he had some things to say that they didn't want to hear. This, this speech, only two minutes long, is fascinating. The reaction of uh, the parliamentarians, equally fascinating. Madam President, Prime, Prime Ministers, uh, 
two minutes of truth, of bitter truth. And the bitter truth is that the European Parliament has done a lot of damage in Europe. It has been sending a false message. It represents European demos. There isn't and there won't be any European demos. The Parliament infected Europe with shameless partisanship. And the infection became so contagious that it spread to other institutions, such as European Commission. The Parliament, the Parliament has abandoned the basic function of representing people. Instead, it has become a machine to implement the so-called European project, thus alienating millions of voters. The Parliament has become a political vehicle of the left to impose to, to impose their monopoly with their fierce intolerance towards any dissenting view no matter how many times you repeat the word diversity, diversity is becoming an extinct species in the European Union, and particularly in this chamber. The Parliament is a quasi-Parliament because it rejects the essential, the essential principle of parliamentarism, namely accountability. The deputy, let me remind you, is elected by the voters and must be accountable to the voters that elected him. Not so in the European Union. The idea that, say, Spanish, German, French, etc., deputies accountable to their own national electorates can dictate something to, uh, shall we say, a Hungarian society or any other society to which they cannot be held accountable and which cannot take them to task is simply preposterous. <laughs> Call it Call it what you will, but democracy it is not. To sum up, the Parliament represents the demos that does not exist, works for the project that ignores reality and law, shuns accountability, turns its back on millions of people, and serves the interest of one political orientation. And this is just the tip of the iceberg. Having said that, ladies and gentlemen, I rest my case. So, um, I, I, 
I mean, fascinating comments. Uh, a parliament that ignores reality and law. Uh, there's no accountability. He could be talking about Holyrood. I mean, goodness, he could almost be talking about Westminster these days. That's historically been the best of the parliaments. And is that not true of, of, of Westminster as well? Um, I particularly like some of the shots of the audience, the cognitive dissonance that was that was visible in their faces. And there was one point there was two people who were just chatting because they were reacting as though he wasn't there. It was an, un, uh, an unexpected intermission. That's how they were responding. They were responding as though he was not speaking at all because they were unable to process what he was saying. A really strange psychological reaction amongst the uh, parliamentarians. But uh, uh, didn't he do well? Uh, he did. Now let's uh, move on to uh, Russian matters. And uh, well, Angela Merkel made a statement over the weekend or a few days ago, uh, which was quite incredible in many ways. Uh, we mentioned this on Friday. I think the Minsk agreements, uh, Angela Merkel said, were an attempt to give time to Ukraine. It also used this time to become stronger, as can be seen today. Uh, the Ukraine of 2014-2015 is not the modern Ukraine. So in other words, uh, what she's basically saying here is that uh, they deliberately uh, they set up the Minsk agreements with the deliberate intention of giving Ukraine time to rearm uh, and take on Russia. Uh, now, the Russian response to this, Putin's response to this was quite interesting. So here he is. He said, honestly, this was a complete surprise to me. I this is disappointing. Frankly speaking, I, didn't, I did not expect to hear this from the former federal chancellor uh, because I always thought that the leaders of the Federal Republic of Germany were sincere with us. Uh, of course, they were on Ukraine's side and supported Ukraine, but I still thought they'd always been sincerely striving for a settlement. Uh, what you have just said only shows uh, that we did everything right by starting the special military operation. Why? Because it transpired that nobody was going to fulfill these Minsk agreements. Uh, that's quite an admission from her and quite a response. It's an incredible admission, but of course it says, it says very clearly nobody can trust uh, Merkel or the EU. So to hear those comments by the gentleman in uh, in the EU just mm. says says it all. The EU is not to be trusted because it will be working for war, while it says it's working for peace. Indeed. Uh, so if uh, the West is working for war, uh, what's the Russian? What are the Russians doing in the meantime? Well, here's Dmitry Medvedev, uh, and he's basically saying that they are rearming, uh, but he's saying. It's much more difficult for them. The Russians, uh, our enemy has dug in, not only in the Kiev province, uh, but also in Europe, North America, Japan, Australia, New Zealand, and a whole host of other contemporary Nazi sworn places, as he describes them. Uh, therefore, he said, we're increasingly, uh, we're increasing the production of the most powerful means of destruction, including those based on new principles. So the Russians absolutely getting behind their uh, so-called exotic weaponry uh, that seems to work. Uh, in the meantime, Maria Zakharova had this to say, or warned uh, the United States, that uh, if the US continues through with their threat to uh, provide Ukraine with long-range weapons, that would be a red line as far as, the the, as far as Russia would be concerned. I would make the United States a direct party to the conflict, even though the Russians already recognize that in fact they are a direct party to the conflict. The Russians are still ste stepping back from that position, but this clearly would be a red line for them. Well, I think this is also prompted by the uh, recent attacks on Russian air bases uh, by the Ukrainians with some very old drones. So the, the Russians now are putting the red line down. Do they mean it? I would say they do. Yes. Because and they cannot back down because of course they're being attacked 
by virtually the whole of the Western world with the excuse of NATO. And then the EU was very uh, proud to announce uh, on the 10th, uh, on Saturday, that they, are, they have adopted an 18 billion euro assistance package for Ukraine. But when we actually look to see what it is, uh, we find that it's loans, uh, loans with a 10 year grace period, but loans nonetheless. But what uh, grabbed me here, uh, David, uh, was that uh, member states will cover the bulk of the interest costs uh, during this 10 year grace period. Uh, via so-called external assigned revenues. Now, they, I didn't know what external assigned revenues were, so here's a description of what they are. Uh, the EU budget is governed by the principle of universality. This means that there's no direct link between the source of the revenue collected and the expenditure that it finances. So you just get a pot of money and we can spend it as, as we like. Uh, there is an exception to this rule, and that is assigned revenue, meaning specific revenue, which is collected to finance specific expenditure. So in this case, the specific expenditure that's being financed is the interest payments on the, on the loans that they're passing to Ukraine with a so-called grace period. Well, can I speculate that uh, we might be financing, or NATO and the EU might be fan financing that by uh, using resources uh, robbed from the Russians? Yeah, it's quite possible, yes. Uh, now let's uh, quickly move on to this, uh, which is the issue of the price cap on Russian oil. Um, and Bloomberg here saying that easy freight helps Russian oil hold above G7's 60 uh, dollar cap in Asia. So basically uh, what has happened is that uh, Russia has found enough ships and insurance capacity to meet the needs uh, that for shipping their oil for now. Uh, some, so that some of China's independent refiners are snapping up cargoes of Russian uh, ESPO crude uh, that is set to be delivered in January. And that's according to various traders. Now ESPO refers to oil produced in eastern Siberia uh, and it travels along the uh, mainly along the Taishet oil transfer station uh, via the 4,200 kilometer uh, Eastern Siberia Pacific Ocean pipeline. Uh, it ends up at uh, Cosmino port uh, and then uh, is shipped from there. But they seem to be finding enough uh, ships and insurance to, to now it's not a massive uh, uh, amount above the cap. I think it's 67 or $70 or so, but nonetheless, uh, the, the cap is breached. Uh, but the, here's oilprice.com. Uh, why super tanker rates are suddenly crashing. Uh, and this is really interesting. So uh, the situation is they were talking about the, the massive price uh, hike in uh, shipping costs. Uh, and But they're saying that the situation is now reversed with super tanker rates plunging sharply. According to Bloomberg, ships capable of hauling 2 million bar barrels of crude oil are now earning about $38,000 a day, down 62% from just weeks ago after OPEC plus cut production uh, and reduced re uh, re uh, releases from US reserves lowered some seaborne volumes. Now, of course, the OPEC plus production cut was directly caused by the uh, $60 price cap and the, the response to that. So uh, what we're seeing is that as soon as that price cap uh, was imposed, uh, the cost of shipping collapsed uh, because there are too many ships available. Uh, but then we've got this from the Economic Times. Uh, Russia offers India help in leasing and building large capacity ships to overcome the G7's oil price cap. And what they're saying is that uh, Russia has welcomed India's decision to not support the price cap in Russian oil announced by the G7 as allied allies and has offered it cooperation in leasing and building large capacity ships to overcome the ban on insurance services and tankers. 
tanker chartering in the European Union and Britain. So uh, there is resistance to this to this G7 move uh, in various parts of the world. Uh, and uh, well, what can we say? It, their attempt to impose a price cap doesn't seem to be working. Uh, David, you've got other economic news. Well, we showed this last week. This is um, M2, the chart for M2 that shows the, the vast um, increase in the money supply over the COVID lockdown and the, and the continuation of that thereafter, which, which prompted the very rapid um, inflation. That is inflation, inflation of the money supply. It prompted the very rapid increase in uh, prices everywhere. And we were highlighting the fact that the, that the Fed's intervention had actually managed to make that tick down very slightly. And they were actually managing to slightly contract the money supply. And we're talking about the likelihood of things breaking. Um, this um, prompted a, a, a viewer to um, provide some more information via uh, Alex Thompson's um, Telegram channel. And a very interesting chart here, again, from the St. Louis Fed, from the Fred's uh, website. And it shows two lines here. Now, the red line is essentially all, all uh, commercial bank deposits. So this is the, the historical inflation um, by the commercial banks via the creation of money uh, as against debt instruments. So they're, they're, they're creating money to lend out um, and that's secured against debt instruments and uh, there's a long-term, actually surprisingly steady inflation in the money supply. And it doesn't even change much during the uh, financial crisis of 2008-2009 until um, very recently. Now, the blue line here is essentially what the Fed is doing with its money supply and its total liabilities. Right, so th these two things are operating separately until something very interesting happens in the repo crisis in 2019. So this is before COVID. The two went into lockstep. So it now seems that it's no longer the commercial banks inflating the money via debt that's actually driving the money supply. It's all now the central banks. Something has broken in the economy. The thing that was broken was a bit broken itself. I mean, there's fractional reserve banking, we've talked a lot about the problems, but the point this chart makes is from 2019 onwards, even that broken system has failed to operate. And we're now operating an even more broken system where a few people in a few rooms in a few capital cities are deciding exactly what happens to the money supply. And it's on their wisdom that the entire world economy depends. And of course, uh, David, this will go badly. David, is that, is that uh, something broken or is that normalization and preparation for central bank digital currency? And control. <sighs> well, just a question. No, I, I, actually, I actually, I actually don't. I don't have a. I don't have a quick answer to that. I think there's something. It's something new, and I think it's something that does does warrant us to to explore and discuss it at length um, now and in the in the coming months. I don't want to give you a, a, a glib answer to that because it's it's too likely to be wrong. I I would simply say this is new. It's never happened before, and the the implications of it will be profound. I suspect. And it's things that no one has yet really addressed because it's never happened in the history of humanity until 2019 repo crisis. Yeah, OK. And what's going on with interest rates for the Bank of England then? Ah, well, 
Now, remember, if you, if you cast your mind back to, oh, two weeks ago, everyone knew what was happening. We're going to raise interest rates. We're going to keep raising them. We're going to conquer inflation. We're absolutely determined. There's no change. We're not even thinking about a change. Don't, don't, don't suggest there's going to be a, a switch in our policy. Everything's determined. Well, not anymore. So there's now a four-way split on what to do with interest rates. And we seem to be talking about, well, we might put them up by half a percent. We might put them up by three quarters of a percent. We might not. There's lots of different um, ideas floating around the Bank of England. Nobody knows. Now, one of the reasons nobody knows is what they've done is they've put interest rates up from zero. And it was the, the zero interest rates, the free money was supporting asset price bubbles all over the economy, dislocations all over the economy. And it was inflating asset prices to the moon as they started to put the interest rates somewhere halfway back towards normal, let alone high enough to actually tackle inflation, they of course started to crash the asset price bubbles. And here we see the Guardian, the Guardian of all newspapers, uh, bemoaning, oh, that the, the UK homes have come down 2.1% in value in a month, 2.1% uh, of an average price of £360,000. It's quite a lot of money. So people might work out how much they've lost in the last month and consider whether they should be buying... Uh, any houses in the, in the near future. And we've got here Mortgage Solutions talking about the same thing. Now, the bank rate uh, is to fall. Now, we're not, we're, we're raising bank rates. I want you to remember we're raising bank rates because we're going to conquer inflation because that's our goal, okay? We're not, we're not having any turning. But the Mortgage Solutions and Capital Economics are reporting that in 2024, bank rates are going to come down more ex more quickly than, than expected because by then, we'll, you know, we'll have solved all the problems, obviously. And um, uh, they'll, they'll basically have to pull the interest rates back down in order to stimulate the economy. So the pivot's already being discussed. All that remains to be seen is the date. And they're talking, Capital Economics said, a 12% fall in house prices, 12% of 360,000 is how much? 12% fall in house prices next year will dent consumer confidence. That is understatement of the year. Uh, Good British understatement, but uh, there we go. And just to give you a small smile, I hope, at the end of this economic section, which doesn't have many smiles in it, uh, we have here um, a father reading to his son, and he's reading from a book entitled The National Debt and What You Owe for Babies. And if you look on the, the look on the baby's face of a mixture of horror and shock, um, that baby's figuring out exactly what the situation is with regards to debt that the government's still building up for him to pay as they support everything while we pretend we don't have real problems and we don't address any of them. Yes. Well, the baby can sort it out, but apparently the government can't. Just pop this one on screen briefly. It's a conservative way forward. It's a document uh, from June this year. Um, it's written by a gentleman called Julian Jessup, a charter for tax cuts. Uh, but what's interesting in this document is uh, alongside his argument for tax cuts, he's already he's talking about we're already paying too much in debt interest. So um, we can say that at least part of the problem is that at the moment nobody seems to know who, who is actually controlling the money supply system. So a lot more work to be done. Okay, if you like what the UK column does, you would like to support us, please head over to community.ukcolumn.org uh, and there are options for you to help us out there. Uh, you could pick something up at the UK column shop. We've got to say that at this point, we can't guarantee 
delivery for Christmas. There's obviously a postal strike ongoing and there are other strike days coming up, but we believe the backlog within the postal sorting offices is so huge uh, that uh, it's going to be unlikely to be cleared by Christmas 2023, never mind Christmas 2022. So uh, please do pick something up if you, if you don't mind uh, yeah. the risk. Uh, but uh, also please share any material you find on the various platforms. I just want to say a very quick thank you to everybody that took part in the uh, Doctors for COVID Ethics Symposium on Saturday. It was a great event. Uh, we'll have it uh, up on the UK Column website. Uh, hopefully later today as soon as possible. And of course, well done to you, Mike, because you spent a whole day in the studio to make that happen for viewers and listeners. Um, so well done, it was really good. Uh, I just picked up in particular on uh, this gentleman, Philip Cruz, who was talking about the legal case uh, in Switzerland. And uh, I thought that it was wonderful how clearly now people are beginning to pull apart the official narrative. So this was a summary of all evidence which uh, uh, shows an intent to harm. That's the case being put forward. And look at the uh, little subheadings, toxic by design, no safety, no efficacy, bad manufacturing, uh, malignant policy worldwide. And that was just part of the evidence put forward. If you want to see more on that particular criminal complaint against Swiss medic, uh, you can go to the uh, web address on screen now. Uh, and David, uh, just a reminder of a couple of Scottish events. Well, one Scottish event and one UK column event. Yes, so the Fonethi conference is uh, arranged for Sunday 22nd of January. Uh, we are still uh, having to talk to the, uh, uh, the, the, the ladies uh, on whose behalf we're arranging this to get some of the details worked out, uh, but we will be back to advertise that in more detail shortly. We're also hoping that uh, Brian Gerrish will be joining us in Scotland at, at that weekend, and we're looking to organise uh, an, an event, a UK column event, on the Tuesday following, that'll be the 24th, and um, more details on that to follow, but if you want to come along and have a chat with Brian, uh, heckle Brian, complain to Brian, um, or give him a big hug, uh, all of these things are possible. And uh, we've also got uh, a, a, an event this Thursday on the 15th, 4.30 uh, to around 9.30. This is uh, a, a, a seminar on education, not indoctrination. Uh, we have seven excellent speakers. More details on that uh, we'll put out later today, and uh, including joining instructions. Mike, uh, if you can maybe give us a little outline how people will join that event, how, how they'll just, do it. Just uh, as far as the UK Column website is concerned, ukcolumn.org slash live, and uh, for the members, community.ukcolumn.org uh, slash live, and uh, you'll be able to watch it there. And then we'll have the archive of, of it up uh, as soon as possible afterwards. And I'll, I'll just Lovely. add. Thank you very much. I'll just add, David, if you'd like me north of the border, you better get the thermostat turned up before I come over the before i come no, over it's called it's called it's called woolly knickers brian and uh, they will be provided okay right okay <laughs> we'll see about that now uh on friday's extra uh vanessa uh covered the issue of uh, sanctions in syria uh, and really was appealing for everybody to get involved in helping to lift those uh, this is on the front page of the UK column at the moment, the excerpt from uh, Friday's Extra. We want that shared as, as far and wide as possible, please, uh, and encourage everybody to get involved. Uh, it is just incredible how serious things are for people in Syria at the moment, while everybody's talking about Ukraine uh, and forgetting that sanctions have been on that country for 11 years now. Uh, they're not being lifted. 
and at the moment the average Syrian has electricity for one hour per day uh, and the cost of heating is at least double the average salary so uh, it's basically unaffordable. Yeah. Uh, right, let's uh, finally bring Mark Anderson onto the programme. Welcome to the programme, Mark. And we're going to be talking uh, global cities because the global cities movement appears to have uh, a bit of new momentum. Oh, it certainly does. Not only new momentum, but kind of a new approach. To briefly recap recent history, I started covering this in 2015, 2016. It's one of my main issues that I cover. And at that time, the Chicago Council on Global Affairs, the Chicago's version of the CFR, was just having one meeting a year, the Forum on Global Cities. Then the influential, influential Pritzker family got involved. Now it's called the Pritzker Forum on Global Cities. They're a, a noted family where um, Pritzker is the governor of Illinois. And now what they're doing is they're spreading this out among NGOs and philanthropies and uh, the scientific community, uh, academia, et cetera, et cetera. And, kind of having a multi-pronged approach throughout the, throughout the entire year. Uh, various articles, projects, um, many uh, small uh, webinars, different things like that, as opposed to one big event. And a lot of it is based on, and I'll talk more about this later, what's called world society theory. Now this is a fairly new term that's come up in the lexicon of the global cities movement. And world society theory, get this, this is important, is a theory of transnational interaction and global social change that emphasizes the importance of global institutions and culture in shaping the st structure and behavior of individuals, organizations, and nation states around the world. So nation states, individuals, and organizations are being shaped by um, world society theory that these different entities are, are engaging in. So they're, they're really trying to uh, get this behavioral modification going about climate change, just like they've done about COVID and so many other bellwether issues. And what you're showing here is the uh, one of several postings at the council's website, the Chicago Council on Global Affairs, better city network data empowers climate action from below. Uh, moving on, uh, there's an explanation Cities are key factors in the fight against climate change. Progress made in data collection on city involvement in global governments is crucial to their success. As the annual United Nations climate change winds down, excuse me, as the annual United Nations climate change summit winds down in Egypt, amid shortcomings of multilateral diplomatic action and calls to attend to a deepening global environmental catastrophe, a group of international actors stands out again as against the grain, cities. The impact of cities in fighting climate change is becoming more visible and ever better documented as local leaders progressively step up their commitment to tackling one of the planet's deepest crises. Crucial to this story is progress over the past decade made in data collection on city involvement in global governance. And again, based on world society theory, where nation states are not in control, but are being modified. And this is the basic rationale we're seeing here for the global cities worldview. I may, may not read all of these, we'll see. Cities are home, and again, the rationale why they want cities involved. Cities are home to over half the world's population. 
generate two-thirds of its economic output and emit three-fourths of so-called global greenhouse gas emissions. Number two, urban areas in low- and middle-income countries are expanding and driving the world economy and job creation. Three, cities are a pivotal opportunity for a rapid transition, get that, into a sustainable low-energy intensity development. Next, low-carbon, climate-resilient urbanization can limit unsustainable and inequitable development trajectories. Boy, talk about globalese language here. And winding up on this one, cities can accelerate and deepen climate action towards climate-resilient development in the next few decades. The opportunity for effective, efficient, and rapid action in cities depends on accessible, actionable science at the city scale. You see, so the, the nation state is being elbowed out here, and I can elaborate on that theme more. Do you, you guys have any comments at this point or questions? Uh, well, well, I'd say straight away, Mark, that uh, I've got a section in the news coming up, and this dovetails in with it perfectly. As we often say to our audience, this is the first time I'm seeing your report on this subject. So let's see how this will, uh, as I say, dovetail a little bit later in the news. Very interesting. Yeah, as we address this next slide here, I'll, I'll read a preliminary thing. The past three decades have seen the formation, and this is important too, of transnational municipal networks, or TMNs, or organized coalitions of local governments, you might call them, that enable cities to improve their individual capacity to address global challenges such as climate change, and these networks improve the capacity of member cities to decarbonize by providing greenhouse gas inventorying, software, and model climate policies. They do so in many diverse modes from independently bridging across state borders as transnational uh, municipal networks, but also as coalitions either stated by multilateral organizations or philanthropies. So that was an outgrowth of what we've already seen so far. And what, what we're seeing here really is kind of an unlawful governance. Uh, loose associations, philanthropies, NGOs are basically governing on their own. They're going into autopilot, it appears, at least in a preliminary sense. Now, addressing the slide on the screen, uh, they get even more explicit here. This is from the University of California Press toward global urban climate mitigation linking national and polycentric systems of environmental change. And it goes on to say, uh, as we move on, most research on global environmental change focuses on the national level, but the increasingly significant role of cities worldwide in climate change governance necessitates a global scale understanding of urban environmental change. Moving on. This study explains how greenhouse gas emissions reduction in 330 cities across 48 countries is affected by diffusion of normative expertise and political economic forces. Specifically, polycentric systems comprised of environmental management consultancies and environmental transnational municipal networks, there we are, facilitate expertise transmission to cities, facilitating urban emissions reductions. Boy, the global ease is thick here. This expertise is diffused globally, this is important, in a normative process explicable by world society theory, there it is, but these polycentric systems bypass national governments in a direct 
global to local transmission of expertise. There's the key part. These findings advance world society theory, there it is again, beyond its traditional nation state centric purview. You see, so the nation state is really being driven to the margins and they've never been this explicit before. Do you guys have any comments at this point? I, th I think David uh, is uh, interesting in I, some comment here. This is fascinating, Mark. Excellent analysis. I'm, I mean, I'm watching this, this local in Scotland. So you, you're talking. This is not my opinion. Sorry, go ahead, David. You're talking about you've, you've got you've picked this up from American think tank, American families pushing this on a on a global scale. I'm seeing it in Scotland working out. Right, so we've just had this big move by the city of Edinburgh. It's all about 20-minute cities. It's all about, uh, you know, keeping people from travelling and all the rest of it. Um, they had a consultation with the people of Edinburgh, right? They didn't tell the people of Edinburgh this was an international policy and, and, and the, the end point was actually already fixed. They called the consultation Choices. That was the name they picked, Choices. So this is to fool the people into believing it's somehow coming from the locale. It's nothing of the sort. It's coming from on high. It's coming from an international movement here. Um, and it's simply branded in a deceptive way locally. But the, the, the rollout is full and detailed and it, it covers everything you've just described. Yeah, fascinating. And I think, and uh, may, may lightning strike me if I'm wrong, I believe this is called the Delphi theory where you give people the notion that they're making choices that have already been made for them. And the, 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 the fix is already in, and you simply go through the motions to make it look like they're involved and make it look like they're choosing something. I believe that's called the Delphi theory, the Delphi approach. And it's been fine-tuned to a fine art. Now, moving on, this is sort of the other leg in the stool so far. And I'll have more next week on the Global Cities Movement with regards to COVID and related matters. It was too much today to cover that and this, but this is the uh, summary for urban policymakers or SUP, like what's up, right? Sup, <laughs> kind of a humorous twist on it. What's up, what's up, right? The summary for urban policymakers of the IPCC sixth assessment report series was launched at COP27. And uh, there's an explanation here that follows what is the summary for urban policymakers about? Uh, basically, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, or IPCC, which is UN stuff, brings out periodic reports based on the latest and most comprehensive scientific assessment of climate change, really. The initial volume of the summary for urban policymakers series was released in November 2018, so this is four or five years old, at COP23, and distilled the findings from IPCC special report on 1.5 degrees Celsius. Okay. The SUP initiative is a series of three summary projects, and they've written three reports. SUP volume one, what's the latest physical science of climate change means for cities and urban areas, distilled from the IPCC working group one report. SUP volume two, what the latest science on impacts, adaptation, and vulnerability means for cities and urban areas, again, distilled from IPCC workings. Uh, SUP volume three, what the latest science is on climate change mitigation and what that means for cities. Uh, SUP reports are authored, they say, by the world's leading climate scientists 
a selection of the same individuals who have produced the IPCC reports, I guess that's supposed to be reassuring, who have volunteered, oh, how nice of them, to support this effort in their individual capacities, working in consultation with city, local, and regional governments, cities and city networks, and businesses. No mention of nation states there either. And I believe there's also a video in the works. Um, there is, yeah, there, there's one other thing here, sub-volume one. It describes volume one out of those three volumes a little more closely. I probably don't need to read this real, real in detail, but this one says, sub-volume one offers a concise and accessible synthesis of IPCC working group one material for urban policymakers. Human-induced climate change is affecting every region of the world and cities and urban areas therein. Without deep reductions in emissions, warming will exceed 1.5 Celsius and 2.0 Celsius, exposing in the near term many cities and urban areas to drought, floods, extreme heat, storm surges, and cyclones. In the longer term, many cities and urban areas will also experience uh, sea level rises and other major hydrological challenges, et cetera, et cetera. So there's a little bit of the fear porn. Uh, there could be elements of truth in that, but they're so narrowly gauged on what they think causes climate change and global warming, if the global warming is even man-made at all, uh, they're so narrowly gauged that it's, it's scarcely, it's very difficult rather to tell where they're accurate, maybe in individual instances and where they're not. But there's a video here that I believe is on tap that really kind of uh, puts the capstone on where they're going with this. Climate change impacts are being felt by everyone everywhere. With rapid urbanization, cities in particular are already becoming sites of human distress. Cities are home to over half the world's population, generate two-thirds of its economic output and emit three-fourths of global greenhouse gas emissions. Cities are also a pivotal opportunity for a rapid transition into a sustainable, low-energy intensity development. Cities can and must accelerate and deepen climate action towards climate-resilient and equitable development in the next few decades. The Summary for Urban Policy Makers Initiative responds to this pressing need by bringing the world's leading climate scientists in conversation with local government policy makers and businesses in every region of the world the SUP distills the latest signs from the IPCC Assessment Report 6 since its launch at COP26 through convenings held across the globe. The SUP collaboration identified implementable climate solutions and difficult choices that cities, citizens, businesses and national governments have to make. Together, we co-produced the Summary for Urban Policy Makers series. Together, we will continue to work towards climate action that can accelerate solutions, respond to individual and collective challenges, work towards leaving no one behind, and urgently respond to the truth that our climate is our future.
Brilliant. Well, excellent report from Mark. And obviously, uh, that's the policy. I'll just add that policy couldn't happen, couldn't be enacted without vast amounts of money. Mm. Uh, right. Now, look, uh, let's just uh, talk about the latest uh, Twitter releases uh, so far, the Twitter files. Uh, this is uh, number two. And uh, Barry Weiss was uh, pushing this out on Thursday last week. A new Twitter files investigation reveals that the teams, the teams of Twitter employees build blacklists, prevent disfavored tweets from trending and uh, actively limit the visibility of entire accounts or even trending topics all in secret without informing users. Uh, we're talking about this on Friday a little bit, but I just wanted to show a couple of the tweets from this thread uh, because here's an example. Take, for example, Stanford's uh, Dr. Jay uh, Budachara, uh, who argued that COVID lockdowns would harm children. Twitter secretly placed him on a trends blacklist, which prevented his tweets from trending. So he was still able to tweet, but nobody could see it. Uh, or consider the popular right-wing talk show host, Dan Bongino, who at one point was slapped with a search blacklist, so nobody could search for him. Uh, and uh, then Twitter set an account uh, said the account of conservative activist Charlie Kirk to do not amplify. Um, well, uh, there's been a lot of uh, criticism of Twitter for doing this, of course, and a lot of people suggesting that uh, Elon Musk is riding to the rescue. But let's just remember what Elon Musk tweeted out on November the 18th, that the new Twitter policy is freedom of speech, but not freedom of reach. So I have to admit I'm struggling uh, to see how uh, Elon Musk's current policy is any different uh, from uh, what came out on, uh, from the uh, Twitter files number two. Um, and uh, I would also make the point that this is the core principle of the uh, online safety bill, which is going through Parliament at the moment. The idea is that the government is able to say we're protecting freedom of speech. There's no problem about freedom of speech. Uh, because everybody will be able to say what they want on the internet, but they're absolutely clear that nobody has the right to be heard. They can say it, but they can't be heard. And the way that you can't be heard is through these types of blacklists and so on. So uh, I'm uh, not quite so positive as maybe Patrick was on Friday about uh, where, where, it's going. where this is going. Yes. Yeah. Okay, well, it's clear to me that they, they, they do not want ordinary people to talk about what they see. If you're using your brain, they don't want you discussing uh, your observations with other people. I've talked about big, big sums of money being needed in order to get policy in place. Let's have a look at these uh, headlines, which were sent in by a UK column viewer. So the Telegraph here, Jeremy Hunt faces Tory rebellion over seven billion government spending on woke projects. And uh, the Telegraph was here, but the Sun was also in on this. Woke waste, seven billion of taxpayers' money splurged on woke roles and activities, damning dossier reveals. Woke and broke, Jeremy Hunt faces Dory revolt as bombshell report reveals seven billion of taxpayers' cash is wasted on woke projects. Now, initially, when I saw this headline, I found it difficult to grasp how the sum could be seven billion, because you, you think about projects, you're not thinking about that scale. But this is the uh, document, if we bring it up on screen, this is from Conservative Way Forward. It's just been published, you can see it on their website, defunding politically motivated campaigns. And if we bring in the introduction, well, we just have a look at the key bit here. This report compiled and investigated over a period of months, details over seven billion worth of savings that are to be had 
by the British taxpayer if the government stops funding the politically motivated campaigns that are dividing us and making us poorer. So very interesting that they've really got stuck into this subject. Here's some of the detail. Section one of the report concerns equality, diversity and inclus um, inclusivity, EDI. Um, and uh, what are we looking at? Cost to the UK taxpayer, 557 million. So, a year. Uh, that's a year, yeah. yeah. Uh, looks at government grants to charities, a total of seven, uh, 778 million a year to charities. Mm. Um, okay, section three examines EDI related public procurement contracts. And we're talking about 212 million every year. Section four, Details of the largest part of the investigation, Quangos, uh, 5.49 billion every year. Uh, these items are costing the taxpayer over 19 million every single day. And it goes on here to look uh, to talk about um, freedom of inf information requests, 6,000 of them put into public authorities. So some of them central government departments, some devolved local councils, university schools, health boards, armed forces. So it really does appear that they've done their homework in this. And uh, if we go through the document very quickly, people can, as I say, go and see it in detail for themselves. Uh, we've got ending the, uh, it's talking about, um, uh, sorry here it's talking about a total of 427 million in this section here um, this one here 397 local councils across uk uh, on average every council employs two full-time staff members and has an annual expenditure of 67,000. so that's multiplied um, across the councils um, there's detail in each of these various cities and they identify certain councils uh, Bradford City Council representing the 13th most deprived area in the UK um, and uh, that's got a number of these roles 125 at a cost of 665,000. And this is to actively promote these types of woke agendas? Yeah and we'll, we'll show a little bit of this in the moment. I'm going to do this as quickly as I can we'll come back to it another day um, but um, universities are included here um, so they go through a lot of these sections. I've just taken these out as an example for our audience, but here's police forces, almost five EDI staff members for every police force, costing the taxpayer 10 million a year, uh, Whitehall departments 12 million a year, 150 uh, million a year here, when you consider British productivity as a whole, um, where we're losing days by putting people on these equality, diversity and inclu uh, inclusivity training courses. Uh, a lot of money disappearing out. They give case studies of where they've investigated charities. And this one is particularly interesting. Um, it says, however, charities are directing more and more resources towards politically motivated campaigns which offer no productive value to the taxpayer and which create unnecessary division and toxicity 
in our political discourse. I thought it was illegal for charities to pursue a political agenda. Well, I'm going to use a, string, <laughs> a stronger word a little bit later, um, but this is part of what they looked at here. Between 2017 and 2021, the government has handed 203 million to charities that have vocally and vociferously criticised the government's plan to process illegal, illegal immigrants in Rwanda. 203 million. This is only part of what this document's talking about. And this goes on to talk about the huge procurement contracts going out. 30 million by NHS England, 10 million NHS Confederation, uh, 9.4 million DEFRA, 800,000 General Medical Council. This is all for EDI training, which is not really going to help anybody at all. Uh, more details here when we're looking at local authorities. 500,000 disappeared, 227,000 disappeared in these sorts of courses. So vast amounts of money. And Quangos are also in there and they say they're responsible for handling 265 billion of money associated with this sort of training every year. Um, higher education is involved and uh, we've got um, advanced higher education receives 14 million in public money from universities procuring its services. Now there was a quote from this lady, uh, Michelle Donnellan, the former education secretary, she said, she's describing the scheme as a dangerous initiative that undermines scholarship divides our society and undermines the global standing of our university system. And I think now we're homing in on what this is really about. But have a look at the Arts Council of England, which uh, um, parade themselves of upstanding in what they do for the culture of this country. 642 million they're swallowing up at the moment. And um, here it's, uh, it's talking about 196 organisations that they're involved in can be identified as politically motivated. Even High Speed 2 is uh, spending huge amounts of money on EDI because it is influencing every single con uh, contractor that is involved with the main contract. Uh, if you do a little bit of research on this amazing piece of research, if you go to the BBC, as I did, and I put in the 7 billion funding woke agenda, well, I came up with absolutely nothing. And I don't think I'm surprised because, of course, it's the BBC that's a major instigator of this type of training itself. But my criticism of the report is this. Um, there are certain key questions that Conservative Way Forward didn't ask. The first, I think, is which department or departments are responsible for the EDI policy, which ministers are responsible for this policy, which civil servants are responsible for the EDI policy. And when we see this lady making her statement, I think she's um, underselling what's really happening because if we're spending this amount of money to destroy the country, we're talking about treason. Okay, David, any thoughts on that? Well, it was a very good report. Um, we're seeing this everywhere, and it's been very clear for years that, this, that the, it is being funded centrally. It's funded through the government. The attack on our society is state-funded. Right? Now, it, whether... <laughs> 
actually identifying who, who makes the decisions is actually much more difficult. But the funding is very clear. And we've seen, uh, for example, um, the, the introduction of, of the whole LGBT um, agenda into Aberdeen uh, City Council was one that I, I, I looked at. And they just hired an activist. They hired someone whose entire life was pushing this particular political ideology. They put him on salary and gave him the job of teaching the teachers how to teach. And then it, it permeated through. It wasn't external and it wasn't individual people being convinced by the argument. It was done centrally by the council and they put the man on salary. They paid him to do this. So we are, through our taxation system, we are paying for the demise of our own society. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. So it's, it's orchestrated and as Mark, Mark, excuse me, Mark has demonstrated, this is coming from globalist policy. This is nothing to do with national policy in the first instance. And indeed, somebody in our chat box earlier in the news pointed out that the policy which is corrupting the children that the mothers in Wales have been protesting about, ultimately that policy comes back to UN UNESCO policy. Okay, I'm afraid we're, we're out of time. So we've got a couple of items to uh, push into extra here. But uh, before we go, David, uh, final uh, cartoon. Final slide. It's a, it's a slightly older one. I think it's a far side one. Uh, and Rudolph's sitting enjoying a glass of wine. And the text says, all of the other reindeer used to laugh and call him names. And on the wall behind, we've got the mounted heads of Dasha, Dancer, Prancer, Vixen, Comet, Cupid, Donna, and Blitzen. And the rifles leaning nonchalantly against the wall. So there you go. Um, Rudolph uh, managed to uh, even the score. Indeed. Okay. <laughs> okay, we're going to have to leave it there, but we've got a lot more content for extra time. So if you're not somebody who's signed up with UK Column, that's one of the advantages of doing that. You can join us in the extra time. Uh, but we're going to say a very big thank you to everybody who's joined us again today. Um, we know it's tough reporting, um, tough subjects that we're covering. We're going to ask you to stick with it, help us to spread the word about what's really happening. We will be back in a few minutes. Thanks for joining us. Bye-bye.